Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Professor John Daly will join us to discuss advocacy. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And our world famous question of the week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. Well, when a group of people gather to discuss or generate ideas for solving a problem or achieving a goal, sometimes the best ideas are passed over. Worse, a problematic suggestion with far less likelihood of success may be selected instead. Why would a group dismiss an option that would be more effective? Well, joining us today to discuss this issue is Professor John Daly. Professor Daly is the Little Professor of Communication and TCV Professor of Management at the University of Texas at Austin, author of numerous scholarly articles and books. His most recent release, Advocacy, Championing Ideas and Influencing Others, explores this issue for a uh, general audience. And Professor Daly, we're very glad to have you on today on the Grok Science Show. I'm excited to be here with you guys. Well, it's really our pleasure to talk about championing ideas. How widespread an issue is it that good ideas are often ignored? You know, the biggest reason I wrote this book was because too many people who are science people, who are technology people, brilliant engineers, great scientists, tend to believe that a good idea by itself will win. They assume that if they do a great study, come up with a great innovation, people automatically publish that study, people automatically buy the idea and produce the idea in the marketplace. Regrettably, that's not very true. Too often, great ideas falter because simply no one knows how to sell that idea. Science today, technology today, the world today, it's not simply about having a good idea, it's also about marketing that idea. In truth, in every company, in every organization, there's a politics to ideas. And if you don't understand the politics to ideas, you're not going to be successful having your idea come to life. Uh, History is replete with examples of ideas that went nowhere. The paradigmatic case would be Xerox with all the new technologies they came up with with PC. They created the first standalone PC, created Ethernet. Uh, They created uh, the Windows screen. They never commercialized any of those ideas. Kodak researchers came up with the first digital camera when you think about it. But Steve Sperling, that guy who came up with it, was unable to sell it within Kodak, partly because in a company filled with 115,000 employees in those days, all film people, he made the very simple mistake of calling his idea a filmless camera. When you call something a filmless camera to a bunch of people in the film industry, they don't necessarily like it. So I think it's prevalent in almost every organization that some of your brightest people, some of your smartest people with the best ideas don't get successful with their ideas simply because they're not able or willing or know how to sell those ideas. So what really uh, goes into the politics of ideas then? There's a huge number of things, and the book tries to cover most of them. For example, uh, what's one? You need to be able to answer the why now question for any idea. Why should we do this idea now, not next year or last year? You know, if we could have introduced this product, introduced this design, I introduced this study five years ago, why do it now? If we could wait five years for it, why do it now? So a good sense of timing is one of the crucial things. 
You've got to show people there's something valuable in it for it also. That's what we call the with it question. What's in it for them? You've got to show people there's some payoff in the company for your idea. Maybe a wonderful idea, but if I don't see what I'm getting out of it, I'm not necessarily going to buy in. Partly it's credibility. You've got to be credible enough that you can actually sell the idea. In science, for example, the way you know you've been made in an organization is your ideas get labeled by your name. You know, it's Jones's research. It's, it's, it's Smith's studies. You've made it with a label as well. And oddly enough, most scientists forget how important a label is. They're talking about, you know, the God particle now. They come up with a great label. It works sometimes. Sometimes you just need to finesse things. Tim Berners-Lee actually created the World Wide Web at CERN in Geneva, if you remember. His big accomplishment wasn't creating the World Wide Web. It was given CERN in Geneva not to patent the World Wide Web. That's a hell of an advocacy issue. Partly it's persistence also. Claire Patterson, for example, was a geophysicist at Caltech for many, many years. He is actually the man who dated how old the Earth is, the rock. How old is the rock? Using lead isotope technology. But in his research, he noticed something. Starting in the 1920s, more in the 30s, more in the 40s, people seemed to have more lead in their body. Where was this lead coming from? Leaded gasoline. He is the guy who almost single-handedly convinced the world not to use leaded gasoline, that unleaded was better. Now, it took him many years to do this, but it was also a sense of timing. Car companies introduced catalytic converters, and interest enough catalytic converters could not handle leaded gasoline. So it was a notion of persistence plus the right time if you want to have something come up. Oddly enough, another skill is to simply be likable. Believe it or not, Ford engineers came up with the idea of the first minivan. But the proponent for the minivan was not liked by some of the senior people in the company. As a consequence, when the idea was proposed, Ford executives dismissed the idea because this engineer wasn't particularly liked. Consequently, Chrysler came up with the idea instead in terms of the marketplace. Chrysler got the benefit, not Ford. Had this guy at Ford been better liked, better respected, the whole automotive industry would be different today. So it's all these skills, likability, labels, answering what's in it for people, having a good sense of timing. One other thing that's really important that we discovered in the research is this. People fear regret more than excited by opportunities. What does that mean? People are more afraid of missing out on something than getting something. So there's always the cost of not investing in something you've got to focus on, too. Most people say it's going to be too expensive, and you want to come back and say, if we don't do it now, we won't have another chance. So those are some things that it takes to successfully sell an idea. So it's better act now kind of thing. Act now. Scarcity is running out, running out of time. Uh, you know, but it's also knowing, for example, the timing is knowing what the budget's like. So in good times, you sell an idea as a way to make money. In bad times, you sell an idea as a way to save money. It's the same thing. You want to get new PCs for your team. In good times, make us more profitable. In bad times, make us more efficient. A lot of these human elements involved in selling the idea, which is oftentimes, I think, foreign to a lot of scientists and technologists. Absolutely. And, you know, the earlier you learn it, the better it is. In truth, in science, you've got to market ideas every day. You've got to know the right journals to publish in. You've got to know the right labs to do your postdoc in. You've got to build, if you will, a great brand name as a scientist. And so you've got to think of the personal stuff. You know, running a lab today in a science environment is a leadership skill. It's not a scientific skill. But you've got to be incredibly good at these people's skills. Um, you know, you want to get people to want to work with you. People need to be – people do vote with their feet. If you're working on a scientific project and uh, no one wants to work with you, it's going to be very hard to get it done. Uh, the age of the scientist working in Dusty Garrett all by himself is gone. 
So you've got to essentially build a great brand name, be trusted, be credible, be persistent. Uh, you've got to have all these down. In the book, we describe specific behaviors you can do to build people's trust in you, uh, to market your idea to your colleagues. Part of it's just working the hallways when you think about it. Here's an interesting thing about funding scientific projects. Most of the decisions about funding scientific projects inside companies are made before the meetings happen. You work door to door, you build alliances, you essentially pre-sell your idea if you're going to be successful. You should never go to a meeting until your ideas aren't even sold. You want allies, you want networking. Now here's something interesting about networking. You've probably heard the phrase, it's who you know that matters. That's actually untrue. It's who, know you, who knows you that matters. The goal of networking is not simply to meet people. The goal of networking is to make sure people remember you when opportunities come up. So if you want to be on a grant, if you're working on a project, people want, you want people to be able to think about you when they have one and answer this issue. We need a solution to this. Who, what lab do we go to? What scientists do we go to? Uh, scientists have to be brilliant networkers when you think about it nowadays, not only to get their funding, which is absolutely critical, but even to find out what the research is going on. Um, by the time a scientific article appears in press, regrettably it's about a year to two years old. What happens is the best scientists understand the way you keep up to date is by networking every day. And great scientists do that on a regular basis. Um, indeed, Cold Springs, the research laboratory back east, interesting enough, the guy who created it won the Nobel Prize a few years before when he set it up. He made sure that the employee cafeteria was a brilliant place to work. Bright lit, big tables, good food. Why? He said most scientific advances happen when scientists from different areas sit down and just chat about things. So rather than having an old, gray, ugly cafeteria, the cafeteria is where he wanted people to hang out because that's when they could generate really neat ideas, especially interdisciplinary ideas. So it's partly networking with other scientists, but it's also networking in a commercial environment with your sales guys, with the people who have to market your ideas, with the finance guys. Uh, you're an R&D guy working in a large company. You'd better make sure people in manufacturing think your idea is good. Because in many, here's one thing to think about. Far more people in the company can say no than can say yes. So you need to network with people to make sure that the people who say no actually will support what you're doing as well. When you go to that meeting to pitch your proposal, you need to have your talent lined up, your technology lined up before you even go to that meeting. That's all networking. Part of it also is uh, making sure that the message you deliver is memorable and simple, true, right? Yeah. You've got to be able to simplify your message. It's a really, for many scientists, it's one of the most difficult things. I work with a lot of technologists, and I say, if you have an idea, I'm allowing you to make a billboard for the idea. One picture and no more than eight words. If you can't describe your concept in one picture and eight words, you're not ready to talk about it yet to decision makers in a company. The span of attention is very limited. You need to be able to make sure people can clearly understand, and by the way, remember your idea too. Uh, great scientists have ways of communicating memorably. One of my favorite ways is by narrative, and we do a whole chapter on how scientists and technologists tell stories. Well, you know, stories tend to persuade people more than data sometimes, regrettably. But you better be a great scientist. You better have great stories about what you're working on. You talk about the experimental process you went on, the mistakes you made. Indeed, if you think of it, the history of sciences, the history of stories of scientists. Um, the, uh, Fleming discovered penicillin, if you remember, in science. What happens? He was a slob. He leaves his lab in August in the U.K., goes away for a few weeks, comes back, looks at the lab dishes and notes the fungi and the bacteria are not next to each other. So that's fascinating. Why would that be? That's the discovery of penicillin. 
Well, most people, you learn this in school, if you're a science student, you learn about serendipitous discovery at that point. What most people don't know is Fleming actually didn't work on penicillin for more than a few years. Found it a fascinating physical phenomenon, but didn't know what to do with it exactly. A guy named Max Flory spent 15 years turning Fleming's discovery into what we know as antibiotics today. Fleming and Flory shared the Nobel Prize in 1943. But among your listeners, I bet only 2 or 3% have any idea who Max Flory is. Everyone probably knows who Fleming was. So the story wins out in science oftentimes. So you've got to be an extraordinarily good storyteller if you want to be effective communicating your idea to people. Very important. At home, you want to convince your wife to do something. You want to convince your husband to do something. Sometimes stories work. By the way, a little footnote to this that's interesting most people don't think about. There are ways in the book we talk about how to tell a story. We try to help people understand how to tell better stories. But we also say if you really can't tell stories, collect really interesting factoids that other people don't know. And little interesting facts can have exactly the same impact as a great story does sometimes. So, for example, you take a tour of a park or a museum. What do you remember? The stories and the factoids. Science is actually filled with factoids. And any company is filled with factoids. So if you drop an interesting fact in and people say, I didn't know that. That's so interesting. You've had an impact. Uh, discovery stories, for example. How was Velcro discovered? A guy's walking the hills in Switzerland. Millions of people have done this before. Comes home, takes burrs off his socks, and he's the first guy to look under a microscope. That's the discovery of Velcro. Interesting little story factoid sort of thing. And what's it teach? You can notice things other people haven't noticed and become very successful with it if you come up with the story of the factoid. Part of it also be making sure that the right people know the idea as well, targeting the idea. Yeah. You need to know who the decision makers are. And remember, again, in any organization, far more people can say no than can say yes. So when we talk about decision makers, it's not simply who can approve the idea. It's also who can slow the idea and stop the idea down. Some people can't help, can't hurt, can't help you, but they can certainly hurt you. They cannot make something available. They can make it too bureaucratic. And you need to really figure out who can help you with your idea. I oftentimes tell people make up a chart anytime you're working on a project. Write down on a list everything that go wrong in that project, anything that go wrong, and next to each thing, tell me who could help to solve that problem. Because you've got to know the decision makers. You've got to know what turns on the decision makers also. And different decision makers are turned on by very different things. Some people want to make money. Some people want status. Some people want to be liked. Some people do it simply because it's interesting and fascinating. So there are many different alternatives, but you've got to know your decision makers. Absolutely, that's critical. There are all sorts of organizations out there, all sorts of environments. What to do if you find yourself in one that's particularly uh, not receptive to your idea? And well, if you really can't turn around, you probably need to move. But oftentimes, it's how you present the idea in the organization. For example, some organizations love new innovations. They love radical innovations. In those organizations, you talk about your ideas being radical and new. Other organizations are fast followers. They don't want to do it first, but they're willing to follow if somebody else does it. In those organizations, you talk about, let me tell you who else is doing this. Let me tell you who, what other labs have done this. Let me tell you what other companies have done this. Some organizations really are really customer-focused. So what you do is you drive from the customer instead. You talk about what customer review panels have said. Some companies like crises. So what you do is you create a crisis for people, and it gets their attention. So the challenge is, when you're dealing with a company, you need to understand the culture for innovation they have. And if you, if you go into a culture that's primarily conservative, and you say this is a radical new idea, you're going to scare people to death. 
If you go into a company that loves radical new ideas, say this is something we should have done 30 years ago, they're going to say, why do it now? So you need to adapt your rhetoric, if that makes sense, to the company's culture and the decision-maker's culture, too. It's, it's certainly good advice. Uh, final words for, for those interested in selling their ideas. Think about that. When you come up with an idea, don't simply worry about the idea. Worry about how you're going to market that idea also. How are you going to get people's attention with the idea? You may have to even sculpt the idea in a way that helps people buy into it more. Uh, the mistake we make sometimes, we love our ideas so much, we don't think about how other people are going to respond. So we've got to constantly be on, on guard. How do I sell this idea? What would make it palatable to other people? So I guess the big take-home is you've got to do two things nowadays. You've got to be creative and innovative about your ideas, but you've also got to be equally creative and innovative about how you can sell the ideas. The book is a compendium of ways people in science and technology and business and politics have essentially sold their ideas to other people because one with the other that gets you nowhere. Well, uh, the new book is called Advocacy, Champing Ideas and Influencing Others. And Professor Daly, I want to thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Thank you. I really appreciate your time. It's been great talking to you. You have a great show, by the way. All right. Thank you so much. And you were just listening to Professor John Daly discussing the advocacy. This is the Grok's Science Show. Coming up in just a few minutes, it's the Grokatron 5000, so stay tuned. It's not easy having yourself look good, Time to play our game. It's called the Grokatron 5000. It is our supercomputer, formerly known as Deep Blue. Today, the Grokatron 5000 has chosen the topic lead, follow, or get out of the way. So, for the following five individuals, the Grokatron 5000 would like to know if you think they're leading, following, or just getting out of the way. Professor Daly, ready to play the game? Ready to go. Let's do it. Okay, person number one, leading, following, or getting out of the way, it's uh, Oprah Winfrey. Uh, leading. She's changed media. She changed media forever in some ways. She's been able to make soap operas real. Uh, number two, uh, it's the golfer Tiger Woods. Uh, get out of the way. <laughs> I, I he's an extraordinary golfer. Um, he's had too much drama in his life. I don't like drama. <laughs> <laughs> uh, number three, uh, actor Mel Gibson. I think I'd change my vote about Tiger now. I think I'll make Tiger stick around and make Mel Gibson go away. <laughs> <laughs> Tiger at least has a performance-based criteria. Mel <laughs> just, you know, that words have consequence. He needs to understand words have consequence. Uh, talk creates reality. He needs, you know, Mel Gibson needs to learn to shut up. <laughs> All right. Uh, number four, it's a real estate mogul Donald Trump. Get a haircut. <laughs> I mean, how much, how, much, how much product does he have on that hair? He's probably a full appointment next to somebody. <laughs> I would personally have Donald Trump probably get out of the way, but I know some people love him, so... Jeez, I got to respect those people love him. Okay. Okay, finally, number five, uh, it's the President of the United States, Barack Obama. Uh, lead. 
think he has. I think he had probably one of the toughest entries to the presidency of anyone in history, given what happened in the last eight, ten years before then. Uh, yeah. The economy, the war, and I think it's an extraordinary job he has to do in the first place. And I think he's done. I know I can't imagine anyone doing anything better than he's done. He may not like what he's done, but I can't. Given what he walked into, it's unbelievable how much work. I do think, by the way, he's his team is lousy at advocacy, though. I am stunned to this day how poorly he sold health care. He could have easily sold health care better, but his team did not think of advocacy. They thought they had all the power. They didn't think they had to sell the idea. They thought they could have mandated it. Um, so I think he has, I would say, leading. I think he's been poorly advised in terms of advocacy by his team. Hmm. I mean, he himself seems like a pretty good advocate of ideas. He's a good advocate, but you know, to finish up real quickly, uh, you know, he did. We know change needs pain. You've got to create pain to create change. When it came to health care, he never created pain. The Republicans brilliantly sucked him into a debate about the plan before he created the need. And the challenge is you always got to create the need before you offer a plan. And even I think his administration will tell you that it allows you job selling. But I think as a person, absolutely a lead. And I'm not necessarily politically aligned with him on many issues. But nonetheless, I think he has a very incredibly tough job and has probably done the best job he could, anyone could do in that job at this point. All right. Okay, well, well, the book, again, is called Advocacy, Champing Ideas, Influencing Others. And uh, Professor Daly, I want to thank you very much for uh, joining us today again on the Grok Science Show. Lots of fun. Thank you, sir. All right. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here, you can email us at science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.groks.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking.